If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Sending out good vibes. And that experience led me on a really profound journey of contemplating who he was as a human being. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. We are going to be chatting with Sarah Salter Kelly a little bit later. Uh, about trauma as medicine and uh, sort of some healing and stuff like that, fun stuff. Um, pretty steep, deep starts, stuff. It gets. It's pretty serious. Starts yeah. out super uh, sick, super heavy. It gets heavy. Heavy, heavy. Yeah, we pull up though. Just pull we up. pull yeah, up. Yeah. We pull up. We finish strong. That's <laughs> yeah, right? a great just, chat. That's we finish chat. strong. Right? If you find him, feel like what the fuck, just. Just keep going. Well, it's weird for us because it we happened like up. her story comes from like three hours north of us. So yes. it's, it's interesting. It's very local, you know, more local than most of the podcasts we do. But we finish light. So it's, yeah, as usual. it's great. Yeah. We get into psychedelics a lot too and ayahuasca and shamanism. It's a great, great chat. Great, great chat. Fantastic chat. So how you been? I've been good. I'm a little sore. My shoulders and my legs, my hips, my back, everything is a little sore right now. You're still sore? Yeah, I'm totally out of shape. And you took me hunting and, oh, my God, I could hardly make it out of the woods. Yes. I almost bailed. I definitely got to just lighten up on the pack next time. I brought too much stuff in the pack. What was in the pack? Oh, I had just had just stuff in case something went down. I had emergency stuff. I was just being in the middle of Boy Scout, and it's terrible. I should just be winging it. If something goes down, then we carry you out. <laughs> <laughs> I, too much in the pack. So carrying a big leg of a moose and a pack at the same time is like impo- it's impossible. I was I was like of a little moose, was a little. I know, it's still it's it it big, almost the size of me. The leg. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty quite heavy. a small moose. Was, so. how, how heavy was that quarter that I was carrying? Uh, it was probably like 120 pounds. That's it? 140 maybe. It felt heavier than that. You think so? It felt Maybe heavier. it was 150. It's know. hard to tell at this point, honestly. But, I mean, if I was in better shape, I mean, honestly. But my my knees and my my feet were ready to. You did all right. You got out there. You okay, got out yeah. of the bush. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. But thanks. Yeah, it was good. Good experience. Definitely a good experience. You have fun? Yep. Yeah, it was it was interesting because we're two hours away, if, if less than two hours away from here, and we and we get out there, and right away we see sheep or not, not sheep. What am I? No sheep. My, no, sorry, that was in the city. <laughs> we left the sheep, and we were out there. And we saw white-tailed deer right off the bat, right, and then we saw yeah. them again, and we saw elk. And you were, you could have. You could have picked off a couple things, I guess, but you say you waited, and then we saw you saw a bear. We split up a couple times. Me and Brady seen a bear twice. Were those wild horses we saw? It's so, tough to say. There's so many wild horses running around. It's tough to say. Yeah. So 
anyways, lots of wildlife. Holy, in that small little area. So like, it could be escaped horses, but they shouldn't be there unless. Yeah. But you could, you know, if your horses yeah. get out, who knows? Yeah. So. Oh yeah, it's yeah, a little yeah. honey hole. Yeah. There's like everything's running around in there. Yeah. And you caught the. That's the first it, time I've seen an elk you in shot there. Shot a moose, no? And uh, yeah, you guys, you guys skinned her and cut it up and we hauled it out of the bush and. Wow. It's in the fridge still right now. Nice. I might start trimming it tonight. I might just wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. hammer into it. Yeah. So anyways, thank, what'd you think? It was good. It's par for the course. Yeah. It was, wasn't too far from the truck, which is good. That's always a bonus. Could have been bigger, but um, when it's bigger, it's harder to get out of the bush. Yeah, like, yeah. honestly, it would have been a two-tripper for sure if it was any bigger with four guys. Yeah. We managed to get everything out in one trip. Yeah. So that's all you can hope for, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Brady seemed to have a good time. He texted me. He that's couldn't good. make the barbecue yesterday because he was still too fucked up uh, from the extraction. I guess because you guys are both avid hikers, so I'm sure the, the hiking around didn't kill you. It's the actual extraction. I'm an avid hiker. I used well, to Brady be is. Yeah, you're I used to be. He's <laughs> a couch potato. I, no, I'm not a couch potato. I'm just a just a homebody. Homebody. Uh do you still do lots of yoga? No, nothing. No, I got that's going to be part of my new regimen. Oh, you got a regimen. <laughs> 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 well, you did good. You got it out of there. I yeah. wasn't sure. Yeah, no, thanks. It was good. It was good experience, definitely. I mean, I had a pack and two guns. <laughs> I mean, you really go at it. I mean, you really go out and cutting those things up. I mean, you just, you just, you, you, whew, you guys, just pulling the guts out, getting. I mean, it takes, you know, it's. That's I'm sure. Certain. I could do it if I had to, but it's just. I don't know. I don't know if it's something I want to keep doing. You know. If you'd want to keep hunting, uh, yeah. It was too much for you? That wasn't too like much. The gutting? Just, no, no, no. Just the, is it the gore that's no, a bit much? No, it's the look on the moose's face, you know? the 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 Just the moose itself. I felt bad for it. Should we put a blanket over its head? Yeah. Would that, <laughs> that help? <laughs> <laughs> if you could just bring out a special little blanket okay. to lay over his head. We'll bring out a little cat. We'll bring out a cacti. As I give it gratitude. <laughs> yeah, we'll bring out a cacti. Thank him for his sustenance. We'll bring out a cacti to start putting over the moose's head when you come yeah, out. That's and then, better, yeah. And then there's that smell of gore that's yeah. tough to get out. Yeah. But, you know, it all washes off. Hey, you did good. I wasn't sure you'd get out. When you went, when you decided you were going to switch me legs, I, uh, I heard you like struggling to get it out. <laughs> <laughs> and then I felt bad because <laughs> that other one was so light. I was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> but I mean, it's a lot of weight because you're, I mean, you're hauling around probably 50 pounds before you shoot anything. Well, and the problem is that terrain was very difficult as far as like uh, old logs, like uh, what do you call it? Dead logs and deadfall. and deadfall. And, you know, it was, uh, what was that? Are you recording? You must be. I'm recording. That's yes. weird. Anyways, yeah, it's very difficult. Your foot, every footstep is kind of, you know, it's a, a little bit risky, right? So you got to just watch where you're walking. A couple times I almost went over on my ankle, but. You did it. You got out. Yeah. Anyways, that was good. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. Maybe one day I'll go again. Depends.
I think Brady's gung ho to keep going. Yeah. That's good. We need a cameraman. He filmed the whole thing. I'm, yeah. I'm interested to in see how it uh, turned out. Yeah. But it was good. We had that whole thing out and on ice in like two hours. Yeah. A great extraction. Yeah. 200 pounds of meat. Meat rich. Yeah, it'd be good if you could find another spot where there was like a path or something. Not just trudging right through the middle of like oh, deadfall. It would, it's always woods. better if you can shoot something on the road, yeah. but this never happened. Yeah. yeah. You can shoot deer beside the road. That's about it. Everything else is, yeah, it gets tough. So I do want to mention before I forget, there's a bunch of doctors and scientists coming out, um, kind of uh, just challenging our government here in Canada um, against the COVID stuff. I'm not going to get into it a lot, but I just want to mention there's Canadian COVID Care Alliance. And there's a lot of, do- if, you, if, you're, if you're just looking for so- stuff to give your family or to people that you care about that want another sort of view on uh, what's happening with the vaccinations and all this stuff. Uh, there's a whole bunch of doctors and scientists coming out. I mean, of course, you're not going to see it on the mainstream, but um, there's a couple, there's a website here in the show notes, Canadian COVID Care Alliance. And there's been five doctors on a couple of videos, uh, Canadian doctors and scientists coming out talking about it. So I'll throw a note in there. Uh, it's interesting, especially after uh, the Fauci and emails that came out. The Fauci-in? The, Fa- the Fauci emails. I mean, it's, it's crazy right now. Everything's falling apart. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. See if, any, see if anything happens. I'm not... Uh, I'm not that hopeful. I should trim me up a nice moose tenderloin for dinner. Ooh. I should have done it earlier today. But I like it to sit for at least 48 hours, and it's really still not even been yeah. that, you know? So I did want to mention, uh, I can read a couple emails. Or I got Project Nemesis I want to talk about. What well, we should mention next? we're only three episodes away from number 500. Number 500, yeah. 500 shows, so that's the last one. Uh, we finished our, our goal. We finished? Yeah. That's it? We just move on to more outlaw stuff. No. <laughs> just kidding. Go we'll, we'll go for a thousand at least. Yeah. And maybe more. We'll just keep going. We're booked up. Since, I'm booked up. Looking us through August, dude. We're booked like, up to like crazy, 520 already. Booked, so. We're booked a lot. Though. We got but we lot, are going to do. awesome shows coming up. A proper call-in show. Uh, we're going to do it on the Fringe FM where we play every Saturday night, I believe. And we're going to do this live from, it'll be 8 to midnight Eastern. So this isn't our type of call show where we're, you know, this is like professional, like through Joe Roop and the guys at Fringe, right? What's the difference? Well, we, well it'll be we, less yeah, of a we, shit show. Yeah. It'll be just, proper. Yeah. <laughs> it'll work. That's what I mean. It'll it won't work. be speakerphone. <laughs> <laughs> everyone will be we able to hear yeah. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone should be able to hear everyone. <laughs> and uh, we should have, I believe there's Joel will be running some sort of delay or something. So if we get any of that Mr. Owl craziness, um, calling in with the crazy nonsense, we should be able to screen some of that. So, yeah, be be good. So that'll be Saturday the 19th, 8 to midnight Eastern. Tune in. We'll, just, we'll, we'll have it on YouTube, too. We'll stream it on the YouTube channel. We'll stream it on Rockfin. And it'll be on Fringe FM, and we'll be using his phone lines. So it'll be a fun-filled night. Four hours of call-in fun. Sounds great. Looking so forward to it. if you've been looking forward to give a shit for something, or 
ask us just chat with us. Time. There's a bunch of people just in the chat, chat that I'd love that in the chats that I'd love to just talk to to have on here. I mean, the chats are so interesting with people talking about all kinds of cool stuff, and it'd be great to have some people in the chats just call in and talk to us about stuff. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So check that out. Uh, of course, you'll get the newsletter if you signed up for it. GrandAmerica.ca/news. I'll have all the details in there. If you're not signed up, do sign up. Uh, what else you got? What do you want to do? I got a couple emails from the Outlawed Show. If if I can read them here, is that okay? Because uh, we don't really do a lot. We don't really do like an intro on our Grand America Outlawed Show. So all right, what occasionally? We, what kind of jingle shall I play? I don't know. All right, I'll just go with this one. So this is from our other feed, Grimerica Outlawed, where we talk sort of longer conversations, two hours long, controversial stuff. We don't have a YouTube for it or anything like that. We we stream the first half on Rockfin, and it's a uh, the second half, the second hour is uh, subscriber only kind of like the THC model. And this is from uh, just a couple emails we got from people. I want to thank them for, for giving us feedback. Hey guys, Dave from Quebec. Just wanted to let you know that the outlawed shows are awesome and worth every penity. Penity. What's a penity? I don't know Kennedy. what a penity is. Glad to be a subscriber here in Quebec. Curfews are over now at least, but the vaccine propaganda is through the roof. I've never seen such mass manipulation techniques by our government. And I can see the impact on my relatives. Many of my coworkers, friends, and families that once told me they would never even, never ever take the jab are now bending down. I'm doing this because I want it to turn back to normal again. This is the main answer when I ask them why they changed their mind on a dime. But I don't, but I know that the media propaganda and social pressure has got them. The government spent $135 million on COVID awareness advertisements so far in Quebec. Oof. Now, all that propaganda paid off. I'm very disappointed and frustrated to see the people I know turning down on their beliefs so easily. I feel the situation is hopeless. Darren, crank me up with some positive thoughts and how y'all handle that situation. Cheers, guys, and thanks for what you're doing. By the way, have you ever thought about having Russell Brand on the show? He's one of the very few reasons I still use Facebook from time to time. Very articulate and knowledgeable guy. Check it out. P.S. We'll send a tip soon. The house is almost done. Well, yeah, we'd love to have Russell Brown on the show, but yeah, he was one of my top yeah, I don't top think requests. He's, you know, he's a big fish, yeah, or a small pot. Yeah, he might, but might one day, one day maybe, because he's a, he's I like his sobriety, that kind of thing. I wanted to talk to him about recovery a few years ago. He was like the top of my list. So we'll get, go get him, Dunlop. Yeah, go get him. All right, and then this is from Michael from Ontario. So these are both from back east. Thanks for all the great shows. I just signed up for Plus and thought I'd send a message. On how, about how much I love the show. Everything is about balance. The chemistry of your show is so great, and the dialogue between you guys often has me questioning my thoughts on a topic. I've recently found a nice state of balance after learning how to meditate. You're one of two subs now, you and the Higher Side Chats. The latest Gordon White episode did it for me. I can't wait to go back and re-listen to all 30. If you guys have a minute, check out this YouTube. I just saw it yesterday, and it really helped me piece things together. And I hope... The info will help you under your understanding as well. I'm sending to my family also, not just to you guys. When and if you remember the higher and the lower self, left hand and right hand, all that goodness. It blew my mind when I started to understand this. Love you guys. Good vibes. And yeah, thanks for the feedback. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna copy this into the show notes and it's a it's a YouTube video, Nikola Tesla's 
Secret Key to the Universe by Robert Seffer. And I will put that in the show notes right now. So thanks for all that feedback. Head over to Outlawed and uh, download that free version at least. Uh, help us uh, by getting that getting that out, getting the word out on that. That's really our only marketing, right, Darren? It's just by word of mouth. So, and we're trying to keep you know beat the censorship thing. And that that Outlawed feed is directly from our servers. So it's really sort of. Our servers, well, the free feed's not, it should be, but I got so much to do, but I think I'm getting ready to, I'm getting ready to make some changes here that should open up some free time. Nice. The free feed is? Best not quit my job, just so you know. I was like, oh boy, here we go. So uh, what else do I got to talk about? I have, oh, I have, so last week I talked about Mike from Vancouver's UFO sighting. Right. And uh, the pictures you've been sending. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, he, because it's exactly the same as the Navy ones. And I should have done this last week, but there is, uh, you know, in the mainstream, they're talking about this, uh, this project. You know, there's, there, there seems to be an easy way for them to try and debunk these, like the skeptics at least are saying, oh, they, they've had this project nemesis for a while now, which can create abnormalities in your, electronics and these are just you know they're not they're not real sightings they're just looking at it through their equipment but you know they are also seeing it with the eye and that's the picture out of the cockpit was exactly what matched my buddy's picture like exactly that white thing now who knows if it's who knows what it is right i mean who knows what they got imagine the billions and billions of dollars that go into the technology like i'm not saying it's et it could just be Technology that is so f- more advanced. I'm not than saying we it's think. aliens, but it's not not aliens. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I just saw that meme. Oh, the best. I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's not. Were you with me when we were smoking weed in his hotel room? No, I didn't go up there. No, you really should have come. No. It was like. Uh, so well, you got the Operation Project jingle for me, or? No, I'm not playing that jingle. Oh, you're not. You're not doing an operation project. What? You're not just blindside me with an operation project. All right, fine. I'll find it. Well, I was, I mean, I told you it was coming. Did you? Yeah. I said I should have done it last week. So I'm doing it this week. Oh, so we're going to go with, with blaming. I'm looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many times? And this, this is from, uh, so I'm. What's that noise? What's it from? Mysterious oh, Universe. I was just talking to Ben yesterday. Dish fire. Prism. Sentry Eagle. Sigma. Mannerkin. Artichoke. MK Ultra. Their winter looks project. so much cooler than ours. I know. It's weird. <laughs> so this is going back to uh, Project Nemesis. And this is Mysterious Universe. And I'm talking about uh, our outlaw, actually, Ben Grundy from MU, which is MysteriousUniverse.org, was on the Outlawed podcast. Two hours of amazement. That was fantastic. So if you do want to listen to Ben talk about the new world and China and a bunch of controversial stuff that he doesn't normally talk about on MU, head over there to Outlawed. This is from, uh, this is an article called New Secret Electronic Weapons and Phantom Ships May Explain Some UFOs. Now, this is back from November 9th, 2019. So this is like, this is right after uh, 
Event 201 and, you know, the end of 2019 before uh, we found out about the Wuhan flu and all that. Wuhan, China flu. So uh, this is from Paul Seaburn. For those who may think that UFOs are secret military aircraft being tested or perhaps already deployed by either the U.S. or a foreign power, the U.S. Navy may have confirmed your suspicions and the reality may be scarier than alien UFOs. Forget fake news. They're projecting fake fleets of ships both in the air and underwater. Fake ships that can do just about anything one can imagine because they're fake. This blockbuster news comes from The Drive, and I've, I'm also going to read a little bit from that, which has built quite a reputation for digging deep secrets out of military vaults around the world. Brett Tingley, a former Mysterious Universe contributor, authored the recent big reveal about Nemesis, the sinister acronym for... Do you know what the acronym stands for? Near Earth. Something no, close, else. close. Netted emulation of multi-element signature against integrated sensors. The Navy's so-called electronic warfare ecosystem. While Nemesis falls under the general definition of electronic war- warfare, it's much more than the usual radar jamming, computer hacking, laser, and sonic blasts. It replaces bombs with electrons. So it says, according to the drive, Nemesis made its first appearance in 2013 with an R&D document, and then in 2014, it was in the budget. And it would consist of reconfigurable and modular EW payloads, distributed decoy and jammer swarms, effective acoustic countermeasures, and multiple input, multiple output sensors, or false force generation to both above and below water sensors. So basically... It's not, oh, dude. It's so crazy. It goes so deep. Like I, I once I started looking at, it, I thought I can't believe how, how much, how many organizations are involved in this and how deep it really gets. And yet, there's very little documentation about it. Uh, let's see what else I can read here from these guys. So it says there's been long speculation that the triangular UFOs seen around the world are secret next generation aircraft being tested by the U.S. Air Force, which begs the question: Could these so-called tic-tac ufos spotted by navy pilots and ship crews be products of the u.s navy itself could this be a project nemesis or another testing electronical warfare systems on our own personnel as we know that's been done before could the navy's endorsement of these ufos be a part of the decoying it certainly seems possible that a phantom or holographic ship could be made to perform in ways impossible for conventional aircraft what better way to disguise them than saying up front that they're UFOs. So anyways, that he gives a kudos to the drive for going into such uh, <clears throat> deep documentation about this. And I, and I was also linking to the drive here as well. And it, it talks about modern electronic warfare uh, disrupting. So this it's kind of creepy actually. So there's a section here called the invisible war and it says, you know, EW, which is electronic warfare, has become an essential part of military strategy over the better part of the last century. This has only become more pronounced in recent decades as military systems have increasingly migrated into the digital age. NATO's simplest definition of EW is as follows. The purpose of EW is to deny the opponent the advantage of and ensure friendly, unimpeded access to the electromagnetic spectrum. EW can be applied from air, sea, land, and space and target communication and radar systems. It involves the use of electromagnetic energy to provide improved understanding of the operational environment as well as to achieve specific effects on the modern battlefield. <clears throat> but they go on and say, say that uh, 
It encompasses a huge variety of operations and tactics, such as disrupting enemy communications and preventing your own from being disrupted. Maybe the most well-known form of this was jamming enemy radar, which we've all heard about, but these include detecting, spoofing, and distracting enemy sensor systems and denying them the opportunity to successfully target friendly forces. Um, it goes it goes really, really deep into this. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to uh, talk about Nemesis is not just some paper program. From publicly available but obscure documents we've collected, it's clear, and this is from the drive, for years the Navy has been developing and integrating multiple types of unmanned vehicles, shipboard and submarine systems, countermeasures and electronic warfare payloads, and communication technologies to give it the ability to project what is, in essence, phantom fleets of aircraft, ships, and subs. This realistic-looking false signatures and decoys have the ability to appear seamlessly across disparate and geographically separated enemy sensor systems located both above and below the ocean surface. Can you imagine? As a result, this networked and cooperative electronic warfare concept brings an unprecedented level of guileful fidelity to the flight. It's not just about disrupting the enemy's capabilities or confusing them at a command and control level, but also about making the sensors, their sensors tell them the same falsehoods across large swaths of the battle space. And then later on in the thing, man, they get into all the different uh, swarms and drones. That's like project blue beam, but with not UFOs. Yeah. Or it's kind of opposite Project Bluebeam in a way. Well, no, yeah, I mean, would it? That's interesting. Though. Think of it that way. Kind of is in a if way. They can do that. They can do Project Bluebeam. Yeah, exactly. No fucking problem. And they and they show all the different. Like, I mean, this goes on like fifty page, fifteen pages here. They got uh, locust demos of uh, Outrider micro aircraft designed to launch from torpedoes tubes, and so the planes could have been holograms that hit the building. Well, did you did you just read that about somebody? Was no. that in our chats? Did I we get an email? I didn't. I don't know. Somebody made a comment on our on our Instagram about that that they were there when the second plane hit, and it went into the building like butter, and then they were told by the cops to leave the area. I just read that today, and they're all thinking. quite they're all looking around at each other, going, "What the fuck was that?" Hmm. Yeah. Did he go on the record? Would he? Maybe, yeah. We should get a bunch of them. Unmanned swarms of unmanned surface vessels and even undersea vessels. Oh, dude, this is this is insanity. And this is, you know, so it's so great that Mike saw it with his with his naked eye. Like he's like, see it skittering around. It's not just a figment of some. I mean, who knows? Maybe it could be an optical illusion projected from somewhere like but he's at least seeing it not through electronic but through his eye right but it could who knows it could still be something because of the way it was moving around even the video that i had i was trying to stop it in those and it was in two or three spots at once and it was skipping around from spot to spot on there so i mean who knows maybe that is part of you know the the disruption or the distraction or whatever but at least he saw it with the naked eye because I, I don't think, you know, the problem is now they're using this as the excuse, it seems to me. Like, this is why, you know, it's not a UFO because it's all just figment to the equipment and all that. But to me, why is the mainstream even letting it out and talking about it? It's disclosure, baby. Yep. Yep. Small D disclosure or? Small D, big D, super D. Super D disclosure. D's all over the place. 
All right, what else you got? I got a quote for you. Ooh, we haven't done a quote in a while, I feel like. All right, let's do a quote, and then I'll beg for money. Quote. That's a good quote. And then we can get out of Beautiful here. Beautiful quote. Well, that is in there, too. Isn't it? I was like, uh, right there. Da, 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 da. Da, da, da. It's the profound quote of the week. Darren, can you guess it? It's the profound quote of the Can you guess the human who spoke it or wrote it down? Profound quote of the week. All right. So this is from Everyday. I got off of the thing. Everydaypower.com. And this is from the section Spiritual Quotes to Uplift You, number 61. If you attach, if you always attach positive emotions to the things you want, and never attach negative emotions to the things you don't want, then that which you desire most will invariably come your way. Mm. Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> That's a good try. Matt D. Miller. Not Matt DeMille. Not Matt DeMille. <laughs> <laughs> Matt D. Miller. That doesn't sound like something he'd say. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's that's like not, you know, saying like, the negative, right? Not always focusing on the negative. Even if you don't want it, don't say you don't want it, right? Because you're then you're still focusing on it. You know, your your intention. The universe doesn't know that you said don't. It just knows it. You said you said it. So I like that quote. You. I think that's a very, very, very true and meaningful quote. Well, if you guys are getting some value from the show, if it's uh, adding a little value to your commute, to your workout, to your walk in the park. Wherever you listen to the show, let us know where you listen to the show. If it's someplace weird, most people listen at work or getting to work or working out. Uh, but if it's adding some value to that, I mean, how much uh, value is that? Is it the price of a cup of coffee? Is it uh, lunch? Is it dinner? Is it a TV subscription? Is it a new car? You decide. Grammarica.ca slash support. Uh, sign up for a monthly if you can. You know, uh, we got coming up on 500 shows here. This will be number 497 free podcasts out there for you. Um, if you can, when you can, sign up, throw some cash back our way. Of course, Graham is doing this full time now. We're chasing down these interests and these projects. So we're doing uh, doing what we can over here to give it our best shot. If you think we're doing an okay job, head over to grabamerica.ca slash support today and sign up. Uh, for a monthly, make a one-time donation. Do something, please. We love you. Uh, if you would, sign up for the newsletter, grammarica.ca slash news. Join the chats, grammarica.ca slash chats. Get some shirts and stickers and all that cool stuff over at grammarica.ca slash swag. Um, also, also, don't forget that the, you're going to you're going to put in a uh, the teaser. I would the teaser. Yeah, I wouldn't oh, have forgot. Oh, okay. I'm just making sure. You're just Go ahead. fucking it all up. <laughs> now, now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> We're going to put in the teaser with Mister Three Legged Stool here uh, before we jump into the chat with Sarah. That's about uh, ten minutes if you want to skip that. Uh, but it is if you want to catch the whole thing. You head over to rockfin.com slash grimerica. 
course, if you does it bother, we stream everything. We stream on YouTube there now. We would prefer that you looked over there and watched over there and all that stuff because YouTube is the devil. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. America.ca slash support if you can, when you can. We love you. Enjoy the chat with Mr. Three-Legged Stool, the little mini trailer, and then the chat with Sarah. And they're fantastic. So I absolutely dissected IPCC AR5. It was just published at that time. And I had chapters and sections, and I printed things out and highlighted them and examined them. And what I found really interesting, and I recommend everybody to go look, is TS 6.0, Key Uncertainties. In this, they talk about some really very fundamental, very critical, very important things that they admitted they really did not understand, like clouds and the cryosphere, and, and the ocean really wasn't very well known before, below like 500 meters uh, until the Argos came along. They really didn't know what was going on down there. And, and when I talk about a three-legged stool, I want to talk about three uh, particular topics. One is, what is the Earth like without an atmosphere? Okay, Greenhouse Series says that the Earth is warmer with the atmosphere. My contention is it's colder with the atmosphere. The second thing is the greenhouse gases have to get their energy from someplace. All right, this energy that they absorb and re-radiate and back and forth and all this kind of stuff, they have to get it from someplace. Greenhouse Series says this is the third leg. Greenhouse theory says that the surface, the surface of the Earth radiates as what's called an ideal black body. And that's what generates this extra energy that the greenhouse gases get to absorb and, and re-radiate. So those are the three basic, uh, basic legs of this three-legged stool. 288K, basically, I say it's pulled out of WMO's butt. I mean, go see IPCC AR5 glossary. That's what they say the average, the global mean surface temperature is. The KT diagram we'll see later uses 289. UCL diviner we just saw used 295K. Okay, who's, we, who's WMO again? Oh, World Metrological Organization. Okay, okay. Yeah, them and IPCC, their buddies. 255K assumes the naked Earth keeps the 30% albedo. Okay. In my opinion, that is scientific, if not criminal, malfeasance. I mean, if you take away the atmosphere or the greenhouse gases, either one, there's no water vapor, there's no clouds, there's no ice, there's no snow. The oceans are history because they get that full 250 and they boil right now. So to suggest that if you take away the atmosphere, you keep the 30%. I mean, that is just, that's insane. I don't understand how anybody gets away with it. And here are some people who promote that. Worst scenario is RPC 8.5. Now, what people don't realize is 8.5 stands for 8.5 watts per square meter at 1,000 parts per million CO2. So, so this is what, uh, and, and everybody, everybody uses this. Uh, 8.5 for their cases and their studies because it's the scariest. <laughs> you know, it's, okay. it gives you the, the most dire outcome. Okay, now we're going to talk about the tilted axis. Okay, the tilted axis is what gives us our seasons, and we're going to see why that is in just a minute here. Okay, the tilted axis, top of atmosphere insulation, and it can fluctuates as much as 700 watts per square meter. Remember, we talked about 90 watts per square meter fluctuation. Yep, yep. 
Yeah. And, and we're talking about 700 watts for any given point on the top of the atmosphere. So we have an orbital delta that is 91 watts per square meter. We have a seasonal delta for any given point that's 700 watts per square meter. <laughs> and then we have the, uh, the two watts per square meter in, the, you know, in comparison. I mean, these are the factors that really drive the climate and drive the weather, are these orbital and tilted and, and all of these sorts of things. Without that, even uh, bringing in the, the like, differential heating. Without Pardon? even bringing in the sun's cycles of it. Well, the sun cycles, output. I mean, the sun cycles, if you look at the numbers, you know, they're like three watts per square meter. Oh, is that the stuff, same you know? thing? Is ah, that... <laughs> you know, who cares? The first law of thermodynamics is very, very, very specific. Absolutely, under no conditions, can more than 160 leave. Okay? No. 160 is it. So outgoing, you've got thermals, which we talked about earlier. Thermals are basically conduction, convection, uh, you know, advection, all the wind, all the physical molecular energy components are carrying this away. Latent, which is the uh, water evaporation and, and uh, condensation moving energy, by balance, and you got 0.9 down here, which is a rounding error they stuck in. But anyway, so by balance, you've got 63. That equals 161. You're done. Okay, the balance is closed. You've got nothing left over, period. Okay, so now 396 watts per square meter is the Stefan Boltzmann black body, one emissivity at 16C and 289K. That's where that number comes from. It's a calculation. It's a theoretical. It's a what if. Yep. It's not real. And what it leaves you is, if you take the 396 minus the 63, we've already used up here once. You can't use it again. What you're left with is this 333 that appears out of nowhere. Poof. It's just there. You can't use it both places. Okay. You can use it once, but you can't use it twice. All right. So, and of course, the violates one. Appearing, disappearing, 100% efficient, energy of cold to hot without work. Can't do that. This is one that was done in percentages. Like I said, they've all got different ways of doing this. Now, they write a number down here. This is what's leaving the surface, 116%. Ah. Do they keep, did they keep a straight face when they write that number down? Do they understand what they've just done? This is not 116% of the energy leaving the surface. This is 116% of the energy that arrived from the sun in the first place. How is that possible? That's not even, that's not even net albedo. That's from the sun to begin with. And they have 97.7 coming back. Now, the general impression is that I get in talking to people is that folks believe that radiation functions separately from the non-radiation, non-radiating processes, independent from them. And this is a discussion that says, no, they're not. They are tied together. They are joined at the hip. Okay. We're going to talk about radiation, emissivity, what I call the modest, and three experiments. I've actually done five experiments, but I don't have two of them on here. Okay, so anyway, now we have the long wave infrared over the total, okay? You, the emissivity is a comparison of what's being handled by radiation compared to the total amount that's leaving, okay? And, that's, and so, so in this particular example, that's 20%. 
I get some fearsome battles over this. They do not like this one at all. And so in the case of the, of the Kevin Trimmer themicity, you know, you've got 63 that we measured from the balance divided by the theoretical, and it gives you an emissivity of 16%. Now, we're going to talk about infrared uh, thermometers later on, but see, infrared thermometers assume that it's a black body, and so they use one instead of 16%, and that's how they verify this number. Well, they better verify it because if they don't, the whole thing goes apart. So I want my experiment procedure is here. I have a 125-watt uh, electric heating element, a little biscuit fan, a spray bottle, a heating element, and a vacuum. I have a vacuum chamber to pull a vacuum. Now, this electric heating element is plugged into a watt meter. So I actually measure the energy going into the system. Okay. Here we go. Here's my spray bottle. Here's my vacuum chamber. Right here is my heating element. Okay. Right here is my little biscuit fan to blow air across it. I've got conduction and convection operating on this, this heater. I want to get rid of the convection. Well, how do I do that? I, I need to seal it up so there's no movement, no air movement. So I put it in the box and I seal it up. Okay, so now it's trapped. There's no convection to accelerate the removal of energy from this heater, and it gets hotter. Okay, so I've reduced the amount of non-radiation, and radiation has to increase. And how does it increase? By raising the temperature. And now I pull a vacuum on it. I have no non-radiative process at all anymore because there are no molecules inside the box. And look at my temperature, 820. It goes right to so your emissivity point or whatever you're saying. So I have demonstrated, you know, I have kind of proven my theoretical calculation here that says it's going to be 800 degrees if it's a black body. So now, in a vacuum, this heater is 100% radiation and no non-radiation. Yeah, so anyway, I set the emissivity at 0.95. All of these infrared instruments, you know, wherever they are, they are designed, they are fabricated, they are calibrated around the concept of what they're looking at is a black body. All right? Okay. And so, so I tell this thermometer that the surface has an emissivity of 0.95. What I'm telling it is all the energy that's leaving this body, this surface, is leaving as radiation. Okay. Okay, that's what I'm telling it. And it says, oh, okay, so it's 135 degrees. All right? And so, and of course, then the K and the watts per square meter, they line up very well. Then I tell it that the surface has an emissivity of 60%. What I just told it is the energy you're looking at right now is only 60% of all the energy leaving this tub and it says okay if 100% of the energy leaves that tub how hot would it have to be it would have to be 157 degrees hmm. what what's really is distressing is uh is nobody's allowed to talk about this really yeah yeah you know and and uh you know why I, why I suggested you you call this an interview with a three-legged stool is because with social media What's really powerful about social media is you can reach out and you can touch all kinds of people. You can just flood people. You can touch them left and right. And um, 
I've been doing some of that. <laughs> so, you know, people who look at this and see three-legged stool, it won't be the first time they've seen that phrase. <laughs> All right, tonight we've got Sarah Salter-Kelly with us. She's a writer and a healer. Her book is uh, Trauma as Medicine, a DIY book for healing trauma and transforming your life. Uh, she's a fellow Canadian. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you guys this evening. Yeah, me too. I love how you, you know how local you are. A lot of your stories uh, in the book mm-hmm. are from you know just a few hours away, so it's always nice mm-hmm. to have a guest that's somewhat local. And if you're ever around, you know Calgary, we'll have to have you in the studio too. I would love that. that. And yeah, almost everything in the book happened in Alberta. I just had to move to BC to write it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, did, I didn't know you wrote. Did you write it in BC? I, I, like you a finished lot it of off. The, yeah. the manuscript I worked on for seven years or longer, but the actual you know, taking everything out from that I'd stored inside of myself and putting it out on the table and working with an editor over the course of a year. That was all in BC over 2019 and then 2020. Did you always, were you always a writer? Did you realize how good you could write the book? Cause I, I, felt, <laughs> I, I honestly, I felt Thank like you. it was, I felt like a lot of it was really hitting, hitting home. And I, and I know part of that is like the, you know, you have a great story to tell as well, but it was very well written. Thank you very much. Uh, um, I started writing poetry by copying old country songs. So, <laughs> there you, go. you know, <laughs> poetry and, you know, Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers back in the, you know, 1980. When I was five, I'd put the record on and I'd write the words down and then eventually um, came up with my own poetry. So I'd say poetry is my first medium. And through that, even figuring out, honestly, how to put a book together so that it was comprehensive for people, where I'm so used to teaching from a more of an alternative point of view, that took a lot of practice, and I had an amazing editor. Great. When right? did you, when did you decide? Putting, uh, I'm sorry? When did you decide to, to actually write it? Um, like it's, I it felt, felt to me like it's been in the works for a while, you know? Fucking long, a long time. <laughs> I, can say, I can say fuck on your show, hey? Yep, you um, bet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, Tell you from Edmonton. Pro- probably, uh, probably at least seven to ten years, yeah. and it in many ways came from the pushiness of my mom's spirit and my need and my own healing journey to make sense out of her homicide and to understand how my grief related to the bigger picture, and then how could I use that in a way that was helpful for other people in their healing journey? And so times where I wanted to stop, I didn't want to go there. I definitely felt her spirit kind of pushing me along. And, um, and so that was gave momentum to it. Do you want to get into a little bit of the, of how, you know, the, the sort of the traumatic part of the journey and, I do. Should we do, do. It that? Should we get uh, in there that or that early? Because it is. We, it's can just, a, we can just go for it. You know, in some a, ways, I'm feeling with the the pandemic. I'm so hungry for public speaking, and this is becoming the new right. forum lately, yeah, yeah. right? So I'm like, give me some people to speak to, <laughs> and so for everybody out there, we're pulling you in, pulling you in, <laughs> even if I can't feel them. Um, so yes, I do. So uh, trauma as medicine is uh, the the 
a personal memoir that is offering up my story of my mother's homicide as a template to support people in their own healing journey. And so to tell the story, I have to go back in time into December of 1995. And um, in fact, even I'll even go a little bit further back then into the earlier 90s because I left home at a really young age. You know, when I was about uh, 15 years old, I went from the West End suburbs of Edmonton to living on Bellamy Hill right downtown. And uh, I often joke that I was kicked out the same day that I decided to leave home, you know, and that the two <laughs> came together in the in that experience. And, uh, and in those first few years I was on my own, I lived in some very precarious situations that uh, compromised my my safety and my security. And so I had to learn how to trust myself. And I learned to trust myself by not trusting myself, right? By all those moments that I didn't listen, all of those, you know, the, the time I was hitchhiking to Red Deer and got picked up by a not-so-savory driver, the, the time that I you know, didn't look behind me when I was being followed home at night and was mugged. And so all of these experiences, because I was um, really punk rock and I thought I could challenge anything and I could go into any situation, showed me more often than not that I needed to listen to my intuition. And I needed to listen to this deep reservoir of wisdom that I had inside of me. And so I start there because I feel like our connection with our intuition is paramount in our healing process. Our intuition gives us this sense of security that we're connected to something greater than us. And that impulse can drive how we show up in our lives and in the world. And so at that young age, I felt very guided by my intuition. So at 16, 17, 18, so that by the time my mom died, I was 20. And not only did I trust my intuition, but I had started to explore earth-based traditions. And I had this, um, you know, kind of arrogant idea that my connection to spirit meant that I also was immune to, uh, to tragedy. You know, I thought, wow, I had life figured out. I, I knew how to follow my inner guidance. I knew how to trust in the, the way the universe orchestrated life. Um, I knew how to create my own rituals and ceremonies and, and actualize self-empowerment. I had it made. Uh, and then on the date that I'm referring to, on the fateful December 7th of 1995, my mother, Sheila Salter, was attacked in the parking garage of her work uh, by a stranger. She was driven out of town and her body was thrown into an abandoned farmhouse. And we didn't know where she was or what had happened for 10 days. And so this is right in the Christmas season. And in so many ways, the, the community of Edmonton really created this um, uh, the sense of support where they did everything that they could, random strangers, to try and help find out what had happened to my mom. People were, there were search parties organized. There was, um, 
you know, anything that you could think of in a circumstance where a woman goes missing was there. And my family did what you do when you're in this totally foreign territory. You figure out how to breathe moment by moment. And you figure out how to get through the next five minutes and then the next hour and then the next 24 hours. Because when the trauma is so acute, all that you can do is figure out how you're going to be in this space where everything around you has changed. Everybody else's lives seem to be going on as normal. And that's really hard for the mind to conceptualize. Like, why is it that that the day-to-day regime seems to have this level of normalcy for all the other folks out there, and yet your world has totally fallen apart? And so in that experience, we did our best. Um, My dad held a press conference in which the whole family attended after she'd been missing for about five days. And, you know, to be honest, you guys, all I had done in that, the five days leading up to that press conference, um, you want to feel like you can do something in a situation like that. And there's nothing you can do. However, I remember a friend of my aunt's telling me to visualize that I was um, sending my mom healing energy. And so I'd imagine holding her head in my lap and I'd be giving her Reiki, uh, although I didn't know what Reiki was at that time. And so that's, you know, and I would be sending her all of this loving energy in, in hopes that my desired outcome of her being found safe and okay would eradicate that other potential outcome from my mind, which was that she was either being held somewhere and traumatized or that she was inevitably dead. And so at this five day mark, the police had called off the search because it was like that minus 35 weather where it had been so cold over the course of the week that, um, that, uh, you know, nothing was functional anymore. There had been more snow, so there wasn't really any evidence to look for. Her car had been found after 24 hours with blood in the back seat. Um, and I mean, I didn't know at the time that they'd pull prints from it and that type of stuff. And so at the press conference, my dad had had a ring of hers remade. And this was a one-of-a-kind ring. And so after we showed this ring that was remade, there was uh, somebody who owned the International Hotel downtown in Edmonton had bought this ring off of uh, uh, somebody who was in the bar drinking earlier that day uh, that she had gone missing. And so we now had a name to put to a potential perpetrator. And so Peter Bright Eyes was the potential perpetrator. So he was arrested around the day that her body was found. And and honestly, even when I was rewriting these parts of the book, I had to go through some old newspaper clippings that I have of one of my aunts. Um, I had kept them all to at some point, but in one of my many fire ceremonies, I burned them. (laughs) I had to let them go. Um, But to reference the events in, you know, with clarity, because you know, you, you lose some of that, uh, um, that clarity just in going through that process. And so that is, 
that is the more of the details around around her homicide. What we found out in time is that she was attacked in the garage. She was raped and he drove her out of town and threw her in this farmhouse. And so in those first um, couple years after her death, it, I was really simply in a place of figuring out how to live and how to be with it. As I mentioned earlier, you get through five minutes, you get through an hour, you get through the day. Um, And yet you're learning how to be with it. And you're also onslaughted by media because there was a court case. So then there was the preliminary in June of 96. And then there was a trial in uh, March, April of 97. And in some ways I feel blessed in the exposure to media that we had back then in contrast to now, because I've had clients who have just been devastated by some of the, the difficulty in losing someone to homicide and navigating the social media impact. Um, regardless that you, it's very difficult to heal. You can't heal. When you're, it's you know, constantly getting this other, this onslaught or this these stories that sometimes aren't even correct about your loved one in the newspaper and, um, and uh, so by the time the court came around, I think I had this sense that maybe somehow it would be over, you know, like maybe like you get a verdict, maybe that means closure, you know, and I, I remember having this sense that when I looked at him in the courtroom, that it didn't look like he was in his body. It didn't look like he was there. And I thought a little bit of some of the um, information that I had read in the news about his upbringing and his history, which definitely had been filled with trauma and being in and out of institutions. Uh, I mean, he'd only been out of jail for about six days before he murdered my mom. And so part of me was trying to grasp how could our system that had already obviously failed this guy and failed my mom, how could this offer up some sort of sense of reparation of harm done in a way that's, you know, going to prevent, be preventative for other people to lose their loved ones in such heinous or horrendous ways. And so I knew that it didn't feel safe for him to be out on the street because he obviously wasn't in his body. (laughs) However, I also, you know, felt frustrated in what we had in the justice system. Regardless of that, uh, he was found guilty of man one in the beginning of April of 97. And um, then a few weeks later, when he went to the Edmonton Remand Center, I believe it was, um, he committed suicide. And so at the end of that, I didn't have a sense of closure. I mean, I was grateful that the media portion of what we had gone through was over, um, but the pain was just as great. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, gosh, that's wonderful. I, you know... I can move on with my life. And, and one of the things about grief is that we don't have a, um, a relationship with it in our culture that typically encourages us to draw it in and feel it and experience it. You know, grief makes us uncomfortable and it makes those around us uncomfortable. So we tend to have the mindset of, you know, like, let's just move on. Like, let's, you know, put the past in the past and, um, 
And I didn't find that that was possible for me. And so basically I, I spent the next until, until this book has been released <laughs> in some ways, allowing myself to be with the process of my mom's homicide and then be curious in many ways of why this experience came into my life, what it meant and how, how did it, could it teach me to be a better human being, which is, you know, as you know, from reading the book, after unpacking the story, I discuss how do we then be with these most unspeakable places or most unspeakable experiences in such a way that it offers us up um, real, um, tangible, embodied healing where we're not having a spiritual bypass, but we're like actually in that intense, wild and crazy, fuck this hurts and it's so painful and I hate it and I don't like it and I can somehow figure out how to allow that energy to move through me. Yeah, like you explain in the in the kind of the shamanic healing portion, which we'll get into later, is that Andean sort of bringing the the emotion in and and having it transmute, really, Absolutely. which is what we're not which is what we're not taught to do in our Western culture. You know how to deal with these emotions. It must have yeah. been it must have been strange from a spiritual perspective because your mom was quite spiritual as well, right? Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. you kind of had this sort of I don't know want to use new age necessarily, but a metaphysical aspect to to life, let's say. And yeah. and then the bright eyes thing. I mean, there was a couple synchronistic things that happened too. I mean, that must have been strange hearing his name after. Wasn't your mom called Bright Eyes quite a bit? Yeah, I mentioned in the book that that had been a name that her father had called her. I think when she was really little. And so um, for him in particular, and um, so for him in particular, there was many other synchronicities as we, you know, moved into the experience of grief. And I'm, I'm saying we, however, in this particular circumstance, I need to say for myself, as I moved into it and got curious about them, I think everyone in my family had their own experience that, that led them in a way into their own hearts. Uh, for myself, one of the, I mentioned earlier to you when you asked me about how long it's taken to write the book or how long I've been working on it, that a lot of it was the push of my mother's spirit. And I would say in truth, so much of the journey was compelled by um, my curiosity of what I'd hear her spirit telling me. So I'd be sitting there with this really immense grief. And a lot of the ways I practice expressing my grief in my early twenties is I would walk in ravines in Edmonton. Like I'd have you know, bare feet walking through the mud. I didn't care if people said they might be polluted. Um, and I'd be singing my favorite songs out loud, as loud as I needed to crying in need as needed. And just really letting that feeling of grief come through me. The more that I allowed that feeling of grief come through me, I would hear some of this guidance from my mom. And it definitely came from a new age metaphysical place of that can can seem cliche. You know, everything happens for a reason. There's no accidents. We choose everything. You know, it's like the Louise Hay Shakti Gawain table talk of the mid 80s was literally like at my kitchen table and she was a coach. And so she'd be sharing stuff with me from the time I can remember. I remember being about eight and she was telling me Louise Hayes' story about healing herself from cervical cancer. 
And I didn't know what a cervix was, but I could tell my mom was really excited and that I should get excited too. So I was like, wow, that's amazing. And so that that exuberance, I would say, uh, was definitely part of her demeanor. And so it was there in her spirit as she led me through my, my own healing. And it's definitely similar to what I carry inside of myself. And so I would, I would argue with her. I would be like, oh, okay. So really, there's no accidents. Really, really, you got murdered. Come on. Like, I used to believe you. I used to believe... If I think I'm safe, I am. You know, that's another common uh, uh, affirmation. Um, I used to believe everything happened for a reason. However, here I am with this most devastating experience, the most unimaginable, unspeakable trauma. How the fuck could everything happen for a reason? And so that was some of my initial arguing in those first couple of years. And you know, one of the things when your life goes through a, a sudden change like that is that you pull out all of your beliefs and ideas. Often you almost purge them. You vomit them out. You take them out. All of the things that you can't reconcile or that you have inner conflict with. And, you know, maybe you stick them on a pile, uh, throw them in the compost heap or, you know, either way you go through an extraction process. And as time starts to pass, you begin to notice that maybe some of those still do resonate with you, but in a different way, you know, and maybe some of those beliefs fit. And maybe as you look at them from this point of view or from that point of view, that you can see how somehow they fit into the greater schematics of your life and who you are. And so as I evaluated and I'm a purger, so I had to, I had to get rid of all my beliefs, right? I was like, (laughs) the hell with all of this. I don't even know what to think anymore. Other than I'm really sad and my mom's dead. And so, you know, I took all of that out, but I continued to talk to her. You know, I had gone to a Shakti Gawain workshop with her in Calgary, actually. And uh, I had a brief stint of time where I worked at Good Earth on 11th Street um, in the spring of 95. And so um, I went to a a Shakti Gawain workshop at, I think, the Center for Spiritual Living. And one of the things that she taught us was how to do this voice dialogue exercise. And it's basically where you imagine that you're having a conversation with somebody that you need to communicate with, but you just start to go back and forth in the conversation, really letting yourself feel into what they would actually say. And so I would do that with my mom as often as needed to express unresolved grief or anger. And as I started to question, does everything really happen for a reason? Maybe there are no accidents. If this was true, what does my life look like? If this was true, why did she die? If this was true, what does that mean for me? If this was true, is there more to life than the personal experiences of trauma that I'm going through right now? did you you went through i mean i was going to ask you this question and you already answered it and this is what was happening when i was reading the book is i kept thinking about these questions and then you just start talking about it and part of it (laughs) part of it was part of it was like uh you know trusting your gut and and fear based on false Mm -hmm. emotions and how to recognize that instead of just you know following 
false fears. Um, but you ma- you must have gone through this this part of grieving where you're thinking of is it all on purpose and all these sort of new age cliches, and then getting into um, you know resentments and blaming and forgiveness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And definitely, and those are all a part of the experience and was for me. And one of the things you've probably noticed too about grief is that it's circular. Like it's like there isn't an order. (laughs) And so I would say for myself, a lot of the unpacking of beliefs happened earlier on. And it was slowly as I started pulling in what felt like it resonated for me and integrated it into my life in a way that I was embodying it. And so, you know, I had twin girls when I was 24. And so learning to be a mother and and to teach them from a place that was um, intentional was a huge part of my grief process too, because it meant I had to really be conscious of the energy inside of my body and conscious of how I expressed that and conscious of the people I hope that they would become. Right. Um, so that, that, that part there was almost a regrowing of some of my beliefs through the act of becoming a mother through a lot of organic gardening. Then after about 10 years, it's where I noticed that I had not resolved or dealt with any of my feelings about her per- around her perpetrator. And so prior to that, I had to go through experiences of forgiveness with my mom, you know, definitely for any childhood stuff that wasn't resolved. I had to talk to her about that. And I went through resentment and, um, you know, however, the forgiveness part with her perpetrator, that took a long time to, for me to even consider. I actually think that, that in the first 10 years, if I was to even allow him on the stage of my consciousness is that it felt like it would be taking away from the significance of my mother's loss and it would have been some sort of betrayal to her. And so even in those first 10 years, he would show up in my mind on occasion and I would use all my energy to push him away. It's like, and, and in some ways it wasn't so much as, as a spiritual bypass. It was more of, I just wasn't ready. You know, it just, it, he was the face of my biggest fear. And so I faced all these other little fears as I led up to that one. You know, I mentioned in the book about learning how to create some sort of a felt sense experience of one of our own fear triggers so that we're not um, uh, manipulated by that on a day-to-day basis, you know, so how do we create an experience that is safe for us so that we can deal with this fear? And so, you know, I went into the parkade itself and I learned how to walk at night again. That was really important to me to be able to be outside under the moon and um, feel safe. And even though she was killed at about 8.15 in the morning in the middle of winter, there was that association with being in the dark and that association and vulnerability as a woman of what will I do if a bad guy comes, you know, how will I protect myself? And how do I know I can trust my gut anymore? Because my mom trusted her gut and she also was murdered. And so that was a really difficult one for me to, um, 
for, for my own inner conflict. I fought with that inside of myself a lot. And I just had to accept that um, first I wouldn't have the exact answer for it other than listening to what my body said and listening to the guidance I felt she was sharing. And sometimes it comes down to how you choose to live your life. So do you want to live your life in that place of trusting your inner resources? Or do you want to live your life in that place of continuously being afraid that there's a bad guy out to get you? And I just couldn't live like that. And so, you know, I remember the 10 block walk I did when, um, I had a, a German shepherd puppy that was about eight months old that I'd named uh, Kali. I thought like that was a strong name for her to be my guardian. And, you know, I was literally had my back against buildings and I'd peek around the corner before I went out into an open area when I was on this busy street because I happened to move only, um, about 10 blocks from where she had been killed. Yeah. And so each of those bits of facing fear were paramount before I could face him. How much of this, how much of this sort of shamanic work were you doing during this whole process? Like that's, it seems to me like it, it was, it's always been there for you since a long mm -hmm. time ago and it's sort of evolved and, and is still evolving to this time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's definitely a, a, a life journey. At that time, I wouldn't have called it shamanic. Mostly, you know, I didn't know a lot about shamanism. Or I didn't think I did. Like, would and, you call it sh shamanic now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm much more comfortable with yeah. calling it shamanic now. Yeah. I think uh, shamanism is the only word that we really have <clears throat> that helps to explain it. Unless we're going to go into a really lengthy explanation <laughs> about animism and pantheism and polytheism and earth-based <laughs> traditions. And so sometimes I feel using the word that is the best translation for whatever it is we're directing our awareness towards. <laughs> but back then, I didn't have an internet, right? I didn't have, if you wanted to learn about something, you went to the library. And so I had been studying um, earth-based traditions, mostly in the form of Wicca from the time I was about 15, 16. So uh, and particularly Starhawk's tradition, which teaches direct revelation. You know, she teaches you to learn how to have your own um, relationship with spirit in such a way that you can trust your inner resources, you can communicate with your own guides, and you can use your understanding from your deep listening to help you to actualize whatever it is that you're intending. And then it also had a very deep practice of reverence for the sacred and learning how to um, form relationship with the cycles of the sun through the equinoxes and the solstices, as well as the cycles of the moon. So I had been having my own regular full moon, new moon ceremonies or solstices, Sabbaths for many years by the time um, uh, by the time that I'm speaking of, which is almost 10 years after my mom died. And so each of those things I feel like were paramount in giving some sort of instruction that you can trust yourself. And that actually, if we shut up and just listen, the earth and the medicine that's here has a lot to say to us and that we can be guided in such a profound way when we let go of our need to, to maybe to understand or to know what it's going to look like or to have control.
And so when we listen without attachment to the outcome, aside from help me heal, or I don't know what to do with this, answers come. But when we're in that place of, I'm not doing this and I'm only doing it like this and it needs to look this way and we're dictating this long list, it's a lot harder for us to get vulnerable enough that, to hear whatever's coming forth. Do you have any advice, especially for men on how to do that? How to quiet down and listen? No, it's because it's, it's, it's harder to feel. To come in here. Yeah, it, it's, it's harder to feel and to recognize that, you know? It, yeah. I, th- I think. Yeah. Um, hmm. I was jokingly saying I should get my husband, Mark, to come in because we've been together for almost 27 years now. And uh, so I've coached him a lot in that area. (laughs) (laughs) Just shut up and listen. Right. (laughs) I, I think for all of us as humans, though, it's still that process of recognizing that we are not the mind. And so as soon as we can recognize that the mind is not who we are, and start to feel our bodies and start to feel what's around us, it changes our whole point of view. If we consider how earth-based traditions, shamanic traditions are about recognizing that there's energy that is alive within everything and we have a relationship with it. And that means as a human being, we also have a relationship, not just with what our mind is saying, but with what's happening in our heart and what's happening in our bodies. So I think it's a big process of learning not to put the head, the mind as number one over those other needs that we have and allowing feeling to be something that is actually important simply from taking time to be curious. You know, I'm, I use one of the exercises in the book as an example that is teaching someone how to understand and experience their energy body. You know, where you're basically learning how to see yourself from a three-dimensional point of view as an orb of light and simply to sense what does the space around your body feel like up to about a foot and a half and to sense it from the front, the back, the side, above, below. And if you slow that process down with your breath and really allow yourself to scan you know, from head to toe and notice what you're feeling. You're slowly rewiring your own circuitry. And this is me using schematic terms because I'm not a a doctor in any shape or form and nor have I gone to university to accredit my knowing that we're rewiring our circuitry. However, it sure feels like, (laughs) I can speak about feeling and it sure feels like we're rewiring our circuitry when we start to allow um, ourselves to be informed by the intelligence that's even in the air around us, simply by observing and being curious. So the mind will want to define it and say, oh, well, I feel that because of that box I lifted up the other day and my right shoulder's out. But if we breathe into it and just notice it, and go a little bit deeper without needing to define what it is. That's a really great practice for men and women alike in tuning into feeling. What about the other one you have in your book as well, where you bring all the emotion into your body, feel mm-hmm. it like love, and then you can switch it over to, that's the one that really reminds me of the, the spiritual alchemy about transmuting that energy in your center or, yeah. you know, if you sit with it, it'll transmute it on its own. Like you learned in the Andean t- technique, yes. where it's just like, it'll just, 
it'll happen. It might take years or days or hours or minutes, but if you sit with it, it'll transmute eventually. Yeah. And that's, what's so exciting, you know, and that's one of the things that maybe compelled me to go to Peru so many times is that I went there to work with indigenous healers, the Caddo that live in the high Andes um, on eight occasions, as well as into the Amazon to work with ayahuasca. And so their, their whole precipice of their tradition for the, the Caddo comes from a place of recognizing that interrelationship with everything. And so you're not separate from your trauma. You're not separate from any heavy energy. You're not separate from any of the difficult experiences that have come to pass. You need to learn how to digest them, metabolize them so that you're assimilating the gifts and you're allowing yourself to compost the waste. So letting go of the shit that no longer serves you quite literally and being with whatever you're holding in your belly for long enough that you can process it when you bring intention to it too. Like when you're really directing your awareness in there and even setting aside, you know, maybe a half an hour each day, if there is a prominent issue and simply doing your self inquiry, noticing, feeling, sensing, what else do I still need to digest about this particular issue? What else could this be connected to? You know, um, that, and, and bringing forth, as you mentioned in that exercise, some of the, the healing, loving energy of the universe to support you when you don't know what the next step or the next piece is. How do the how do they bring in the spirit animals and all that? We, we just had a guest on our other show that was talking about Andean shamanism, and he was just trained in the lineage of... Uh, now I don't remember the guy's name, but it was in the, in the, in, the, in the energy healing. The in notes. the energy healing... <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't the it wasn't the ayahuasca part. It was the energy healing part. But, the but he healing. he also mentioned the the spirit animals and the and the sort of jaguar and those types of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the um, so to speak specifically with what I learned from the folks I worked with in the Caddo, knowing that every indigenous culture across the Andes would have a different way of seeing this much like, you know, I have, I have worked in many spaces with, um, with the Cree the in Alberta. And I'm conscious that there's many different Cree nations and every different Cree nation is going to have a different relationship with animal archetypes because it's based on relationship. And so for the particular folks that I have worked with that come from the, um, the sacred Apu woman Leper, uh, which is really high up, uh, the village of Chimachampana, close to 17,000 feet, actually. Uh, you can barely breathe when you're up there. Like you're, It's almost like you're, you have to move in real slow motion because of the altitude. And it's just beautiful. So there... They also have a relationship with the jaguar, but for them it's called the puma or the, um, yeah, typically the puma, as well as the condor and the serpent, Sachamama. So one of the beautiful things in Andean shamanism and one of the reasons why I think that it's making such a really strong, uh, um, having such strong growth in the West is because of how they 
have the connection with their three main archetypes, such as the serpent representing the lower world or the underworld, the jaguar, the puma representing the middle world, so the world in which we live each day, and then the condor representing the upper world. So it helps to give us a real symbolic understanding of how to navigate the different energies that that I think as humans, we just know are a part of day-to-day life. But often in Western culture, we've lost connection with it. Especially the underworld. I mean, you, you mentioned that quite a bit in your book. I was going to ask mm-hmm. you about, you know, traveling the underworld and just, you, you I mean, how do you mm-hmm. trust that, that, you know, the guides you find down there are, are, you know, good? Or can you explain a little bit more about the process of going there, I guess, or traveling mm-hmm. there? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I can't, there's the part of me that just wants to be ridiculously silly. So oh, you can going, be. There, I mean, totally. going there straight up or going yeah. there oh, yeah. ayahuasca like, or mushrooms or, <laughs> right? <laughs> if we're going there straight up, uh, it takes a little bit more practice over time, right? One of the beautiful things about plant medicine is that it can help us to have a felt sense experience. Um, however, learning and, and learning how to do that on our own is a really powerful tool in our healing journey. So learning how to just move into that space. So I like to describe it to people as the place that is symbolic of everything that we have left unresolved. It holds our soul wounds, our traumas, our disappointments, our loss, our grief, our um, all the things we wish we were, all the things that we know we're not, our fear, you know, what we don't want to look at, what we're, the cultural taboos, the things we hate about ourselves. Uh, I think that there's a collective underworld, which I haven't, which, I, which I've felt into to some degree, but in my book, I'm speaking more about our personal underworld. And so in our personal underworld, this is what we haven't wanted to deal with. And when we name it as the underworld, we're giving ourselves the opportunity to find a symbolic way that we can move into something that makes no rational sense. And because our trauma and our fear and our grief and our disappointment and all of these things that made us feel so painful and, and, and yucky don't make sense giving ourselves permission to have a symbolic journey into a space that can hold our greatest demons and our greatest fears. And it's allowed to, you know, we don't sit there and be like, Oh, you're crazy. You're seeing this instead, all of that's allowed. And so typically I support somebody in going into that space with a guided meditation or a guided shamanic journey, maybe using my drum um, or just using my voice. However, through time, we can learn how to go into that space ourselves just with practice. It's like any, it's like learning how to be a runner. And with the plant medicine, you can't stop from going there. (laughs) With the plant medicine, you're going in, right? With the plant medicine, you're going in. And so, um, So one of the differences that I've observed, whether that's in my own practice or in clients that I've supported, is that some people really struggle with the mechanics in their own constitution to feel comfortable in facing the triggers that show up each day if they haven't developed the skill to go into the underworld of their own accord. And so if they're always using ayahuasca or psilocybin or whatever their 
their plant medicine of choices to move into the underworld, it doesn't necessarily give a person the embodied experience in the day-to-day to address the shit as it shows up when you're not in a ceremony. And so that's why I think that it's so important to develop the skill ourselves. This is, it's about relationship. And all we're doing when we call it the underworld is creating a context that gives us some symbolism to move into this really dark and heavy energy that, um, that is seeking some sort of resolution. It's seeking, it's seeking digestion, you know, again, for what the gifts are to be assimilated into your experience in the middle world, or maybe ascend into the upper world and whatever that compost is to be released in that lower world and that underworld to help to feed the roots of who you're becoming. So very much so having that capacity to then use whatever it is that you've seen in your underworld to, you know, say that you, you have a trigger that's um, relating to fear in your day-to-day life. And because you spent this time in facing something that was really scary for you in a shamanic journey, you trust in your intuition a little bit more that you'll have the strength to address it. Yeah, I like that. Darren, do you have any questions? I, I can one, tell you kind of, yeah, you're kind of, you're thinking of something. Well, I got more. Um, I guess there's a couple things I want to talk about. Is your, is your, oh, your, wait, I got it now. Okay. <laughs> How does ego fit into that? Because ego is a pretty powerful factor to deal with when, when you're, trying to deal with your shit just to you know dealing with those triggers on the day to day do you find any sort of tie in with the ego and dealing with grief uh, or trauma in that mm-hmm. same same way cuz i mean i guess it's all different manifestations of trauma would be one way of looking you know the things that are triggering your anger in the day to day you know the customer you can't deal with or the coworker mm-hmm. that drives you nuts you know maybe right. maybe that's all the same is that all the same sort of thing? Because in my personal experience, it's like not taking yourself too seriously is kind of that, you know, you got to sort of detach yourself from the situations. But I mean, now that I think about it, I've, I've dealt with a lot of fucking grief over the last decade too. And I wonder if that doesn't tie into some of it, but I guess there's might be a question there somewhere. (laughs) Well, thinking about what you said about how does ego tie in. So maybe I'll start there and see if it's a fit for what you were asking. The ego, I'm not somebody who's ever believed that we need to get rid of our egos. I think our egos can be a really great tool for helping us to have confidence and to um, be resilient in our lives. And our ego can simultaneously get in the way of letting go of all of those tethers that we have to control so that we can open to some of that vaster support of spirit. So if we were to speak of a shamanic journey in particular, so if I was to be leading you on a journey that supported you in slowing down the ego and in slowing down the mind, some people have a harder time doing that than others. One of the things that's really helpful is the use of a drum. And I know that there's actual science around that to do with the beta waves and the, the waves. 
But what happens for me if there's information that I don't need to hold on to, I don't. So I can tell you exactly why. <laughs> but that whole sound, right? And so when that sound is there, and you're able to let go enough to just follow that sound, you think about, you know, if you're at an um, outdoor festival, not like folk festival, but I'm thinking Astral Harvest. Oh. And there's that... Right. I've taught there a few times and you've got that sound going, then you can start to uh, sync yourself. Let's say, let's say you're syncing your vibration system with that sound enough that you can allow yourself to start to visualize. And perhaps if it's being facilitated by a human such as myself with very, um, I'm very mindful of not leading anybody into somewhere that's my idea, right? And so it will be more of you'd have an intention of what you wanted to look at. We'd have a conversation about the underworld. And I would say once it felt like you were relaxed enough, if there was a doorway to the underworld, what would it look like? I might offer some ideas. Some people see them as a, a door at the base of a tree or like a little cavern you move into. It needs to be in such a way that it's real for you because our egos are so conscious of, of authority too. And if somebody else trying to take control of our experience, or at least mine is, I know I, I definitely had a, um, you know, fuck anybody else who tells me how to heal this. I'm going to do it myself. Like that was, that was there for many years. I had to, I had to learn to let go of that and invite in support. Um, however, the support really had to come in such a way that I still maintain my sovereignty. And so if we have that feeling that somebody's not trying to take control of us, that helps to often soften the nervous system enough that the ego is like, okay, we'll see. Maybe I'll give this a whirl so that you can go into your felt sense. What we're wanting is to feel. We yeah. don't have the answer for what will happen on the other side of feeling. We just want to feel. That makes sense, Darren. Yeah, so in that sense, the ego death is more of a reboot than anything else. Maybe it's like, because uh, that's what, uh, when I think of the plant medicines, that seems to be what's happening there. I mean, for lack of a better word. I mean, when mm -hmm. our DMT experiences or breakthrough psilocybin experiences, there's this is this profound feeling of loss that's sort of replaced by, I mean, in my experience, it's almost like an upgrade or, or, or I don't know. I mean, it's weird because with the DMT experiences, you don't even know what the fuck happened, but you know, for the next three months, you're like integrating this new substructure frame reality framework inside. And you don't even know why or how, or, I mean, I still have words that I've heard in my experiences that I don't even remember how to, you know, like you'll never forget, but I can't tell you what the fuck they said hmm. at at the same time. But I would still attribute those those experiences as to being some of the most profound in my life for reasons I can't understand. I wonder hmm. if the ayahuasca <laughs> if the ayahuasca ceremony is a little more drawn out. And if you could mm -hmm. maybe put into context what's maybe happening there, and it's just like, because the DMT is really DMT, just right? like fucking pow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And 
And as of yet, I've only experienced ayahuasca in the Amazon in traditional ceremony. And so the traditional ceremony is typically about seven, eight hours long in the evening. And so what's happening is that you have an indigenous healer, an ayahuasca, if it's a male, an ayahuasca, if it's a female, who is singing songs called Icaros that are specifically songs that the sentient beings of the plants themselves gave to them to use to gather up certain healing energy to support the people who are going through the ayahuasca ceremony. And so the songs that are being used can open you up to these really great heights, but they can also pull in uh, energy that seems to connect you very viscerally to what you haven't dealt with. And that's what you end up purging. Sounds and a little that, more healing than the up the instant upgrade from, <laughs> from smoking. You know. Well, m- maybe that's all happening in the background yeah. still, you know, because yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, the, I, I'm not ruling out the shaman. I mean, the shaman's doing a ton of stuff, but the, the the medicines themselves are there for a reason. They got that power for a reason. I think that you can, I mean, how many people inadvertently stumble into a life-changing psilocybin, LSD, or DMT yeah. experience? You know, yeah. they're, they're, they think they're going out for a party, and the next thing you know, they're fucking questioning everything. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like uh, LSD and psilocybin were a huge part of my experimentation at 16 and 17 and 18 and definitely you know i had this epiphany experience at 16 of connecting with all of the universe when i was coming down from my first acid trip and i couldn't believe how immense my spirit was and that it could even be inside this little body and so i i think that you know because i'm a ceremonialist there was a time period where i had uh where i was righteous and i knew everything (laughs) once upon a time i had all the answers and when i had all the answers i i really thought that the best way or the way to work with ayahuasca or plants or plant medicine is in ceremony and and yet for me to even make that statement i'd be denying the experiences that I had myself that were most definitely not in ceremony. And so I do believe that there is an upgrade to use your words to our system through those experiences that are, uh, that are rewiring or realigning us with some of the harmonics of the universe in ways that we can't conceptualize. The beauty of an intentional ceremony is that we just get to explore it differently. And we have a different type of support. And maybe because of that support is that we're calling in even a vaster amount of collective powers to be present. And someone holding space for you. And you have somebody holding space. So the difference between somebody holding space and doing it yourself is you're also being witnessed. And sometimes it's well, scary we usually to be haven't, we, we do it together. I have some, I have some buddies that we, we take yeah. care of each other and stuff like that. But uh, it's interesting. It's uh, especially with the DMT. I mean, the mushroom experience is a little more navigable. Hmm. And it sounds like the ayahuasca experience is a little more navigable. Because even when you're like peeking hard on mushrooms, you can sort of still picture yourself as a state of self. 
Like well, they think Darren it needs on quantity. to. Darren's doing, and even you get into the higher ends of that. Yeah, but I yeah. mean, that DMT, it's just like, phew. Darren, who? Oh, okay. Like there's, okay. there's, there's ten minutes or five minutes there that that you're just like a particle in a void or when whatever's going on, whatever you are, your, your, your entire sense of self is, is completely gone. Hmm. So, so for the first bit of the experience, you're trying to figure out what the, what the fuck's going on because there's your, I mean, it's like dying. I mean, the, the DMT experience to me in a lot of ways, it's got its, it's got its stuff, you know, where you, there was an entity and there's, there's this crazy psychedelic experience, but, but more than anything, it was like, yeah, it, it felt like dying. It was like, hmm. it was like a form of death that you get to return from. Hmm. Was there anything that like really that for profound. ayahuasca? I mean, the ayahuasca experience sounds a lot more navigable in the same way as the psilocybin. But I don't know. I wonder if this the DMT isn't useful on its own just for that that, for that, that complete experience. lack of self. And then when I thought I had it figured out and I tried to go back again, it was like whew. and then, you know, since then I haven't I haven't, you know, I've done it, I've dabbled in the mushrooms, but I haven't taken any significant amounts, anything other than, you know, what I would call mm-hmm. microdosing. And and it's been well over a year going in on two, and I have like no fucking aspirations of. I know I'll do it again, but I'm not quite there yet. And I mean that whole experience has me tepid about the ayahuasca experience because I don't know if I want to. You know, eight hours there is is super intimidating. Right, it's long. To answer your question about how that might relate to DMT. And because I haven't done DMT, I can't speak to that side. What I would say with ayahuasca is it depends on the amount. Like I did have an experience the first time I went to the Amazon where I felt like I needed more than whatever the medicine man had given me. Right. And you put that in your book. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And he was pretty sure he's like, you know, um, Sarita, no necesito mas. And I'm like, yes, I do need more. (laughs) Yes. And, um, and so I, I got to go through that experience of that, that is a little, maybe a little bit more like what you're describing where I, like, I felt totally paralyzed and capacitated. Uh, and, and I think for myself, I didn't need it to be that hard, you know, in hindsight that, uh, and, and the same is true of any of my practice with, um, any plant medicine that I don't. I don't want to obliterate my mind to the point of what might be called an ego death or it doesn't, but I want more gentleness. Well, I feel like you could get more done because I mean, like, (laughs) honestly, I'm just in there and, and there's no navigability. Like it's, it's, we're past paralyzed on the couch. We're like, my eyes don't work. My, there's, there's, (laughs) there's no concept of like, it's just like you're a, fear floating in this realm of, and then you slowly sort of come back into it. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I, if I, ooh. <laughs> it's different. Well, what I'm curious about is what happens for you after that feels like the alchemical formula, um, 
that that you bring from that experience into your day-to-day life. When That's I think about it, you've changed quite a bit since then, really. Yeah. There's so many variables though that it's it'd be hard to pin anything down but i mean i do feel like it's changed my outlook there was a lightness to him like i remember him describing like a a lightness or like a sense of bliss throughout the day or there's some sort of like you were able to that's never really gone away yeah you know it's just never gone away it's just that's that's it's it was a life-changing couple of experiences over the course of two months or whatever it was that that still to this day, I can't tell you what the fuck happened. Yeah, yeah. Which makes yeah. me wonder if it isn't that, you know, kind of that what the plant wants to take you to. But we've, of course, humans have figured out a way to like extract it, extract it down it. to its purest <laughs> possible form so so that we can smoke it instead of doing the way the ancients or the shamans want us to do. And it sounds like there's been huge value in your experience. Oh yeah, I like right at the end of the day, like that's what matters is that if this has changed your life. Yeah, and I facilitated other people too. Like my buddy John, when he did it for the first time, um, you could like that dude looked different Hmm. a week later. And it wasn't just me and Jason that noticed it. Like I went by because it was like uh, a sort of a semi-work relationship. And I went by the trailer there like a week later and, and his coworkers were like, fucking dude looks like a different dude. And, and you know what it was I was able to put my finger on later is it was like less wrinkles in his face. Hmm. It was like his fucking face just, just relaxed. And to this day, he'll tell me that that was, was a life changing and he's the same thing. He doesn't know, you know, and you're there, you're talking to him and, 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 at the end of it, there's sort of some, you can feel like they're going through something more than I could feel I was going through something. Um, but yeah, like people that didn't even know about the experience were like, dude looks different. Mm-hmm. And like when he went home that day, I was like, dude looks different. Like, I don't know what the fuck happened. And then we had talked about it enough. And that's what, what I think we figured it was, is that, is that his face actually just lost like fucking 10 years of wrinkles. 10 years of fucking stress or contorted muscles or just like stiff upper lip in it or turn in another cheek or whatever. All these little things that have been storing up in your face. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's true though. I'm going to get a text about that. (laughs) (laughs) What's coming to me as you're speaking is that in some way it's like a, a spiritual makeover in in a way though like i believe these plans have consciousness that doesn't matter what form you're taking them in that somehow it's a connection to this consciousness that is aligning you more and more with your true nature from my very first experience with ayahuasca i had a better understanding of what i even needed in my body as far as what herbs to take what food to eat what, what practices to have there's there's something that that just happens through an experience with, uh, you know, and there's, I was and, eating and better too. Now that you mention it, my diet has strayed since that experience for a while there. I was like eating good. I was exercising. Remember I got up to like 10,000 pushups and then I took mm-hmm. two weeks off for Christmas and fucking never looked back. <laughs> <laughs> But I remember that like lately I've been, because I know what to eat. 
Yeah. Like not everything, but I know what I should be eating for the most part. Whether or not I can stick to that is a different thing. But for like six months after that, or at least three months after that, I was like on my game for diet. Well, you were better, well, body better knows. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're so connected to spirit that putting something into your body that has a doesn't have the right energy for your system gets rejected automatically. I was just talking on another podcast about my experiences with LSD and mushrooms because you were mentioning b- back when you were a teenager. I mean, yeah. I I haven't done it in many, 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 many years, and I, but I really wish I had the reverence back then. But now that I heard you talking about it, and I, I bet you it did change me in a certain way. Like, but I just I was always partying too much to to actually get anything mm. meaningful out of it. I mean, I think looking back, I probably did. I mean, I know things did happen, but it just I just. You know, I missed that that opportunity. I don't think I did. You know, the <laughs> the first mushroom trip I ever think I got anything meaningful out of was probably the one in like Joey's basement. Right. When that was a podcast. When it was a podcast. <laughs> but it was still much more reverence than usual. Yeah, it was just oh, like yeah, a yeah. little bit of reverence. Just yeah. a little bit. Like, hey, we're gonna do some mushrooms to to broadcast it or however we fucking <laughs> however we 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 convinced ourselves it was a good idea, <laughs> but, uh, you know, to share the experience with everyone. So I think that gave it a bit of reverence. And then when you go into it with actual intention, it's a whole new thing. And, and, and to my, in my defense, when, when Jay and I do DMT, it's very much, I mean, we're not, we know it's not a good time. Like the whole time going up to it, I'm like sweaty palms, like fuck it's today. Today's the day. And then it's like the when you're driving over there, it's like fuck. <laughs> and then even when it's almost your turn, you know, there's like there's nothing fun about it. There's no part of it that's like fuck. Yeah, I cannot wait to get this done. It's like very tepid the whole time, right up till you're doing it. And then it's like okay, here we go. But it's not like. Uh, but we go into it kind of knowing, you know, we've got some crystals out and. There's some nice music playing, but we're going into it for growth or for, Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe personal growth is definitely one of the things. And there's also just a psychonautic um, aspect to it of like learning what the fuck is going on here. Yeah. 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 There's something about those ones like DMT, psilocybin and ayahuasca that seem more, you know, the, the like lab ones to me don't do it so much. Is the, like the DMT one's crazy because it's like this shit is being produced by your body. Mm, I know, I know. Yeah, but LSD is just a chemical when you when you when you break it all down. It's just you know it's been manufactured, but it's still just chemicals, just like oh yeah, yeah. It was like I think they were trying to make fake psilocybin, weren't they? I don't know what they were doing. Hey. I think so. Actually, in Calgary, I think I think isn't there a place that is considering? Um, it's wanting to use it for clinical use. Well, mushrooms, are, mushrooms. mushrooms are about mushrooms. to go, mushrooms are about to go fucking buck wild. I know. When they're, I get really curious, they're going to about... eclipse weed. Like people, who, weed's cool because it's got the whole recreational side, which yeah. is great. I mean, I smoke a ton of weed. I'm not bashing weed, but uh, and I do think there's a ton of medicinal value to my weed smoking. That aside, mushrooms are going to be a fucking game changer when it yeah. comes to uh, the real problems that our society faces. Whereas, whereas marijuana is more of a, I would, and and you can sort of hide from it more. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, you can go the opposite if you get into the edibles. Good luck hiding. There's no place to hide yeah. from yourself. Yeah. 
But, you know, you can sort of, I did for years, I was guilty of smoking weed to get away from things. I mean, mm. uh, now I smoke weed just because it makes me happier. And I think that's better for my manifestation. Maybe it's a religion. I don't care. I'm not defending it anymore. But the mushrooms, I think, have the ability to like really change some some lives um, on a on a different level than the weed can. I think. And I I mean, there's the whole cancer thing. I'm probably ignoring that that cannabis is doing great things for. But I don't know. I'm pretty excited about the mushrooms because I never really thought I'd see it happen in my lifetime. Graham's been saying it's going to happen, and I'm like, no, yeah. man, I don't think so. And all of a sudden it's happening fast. Yeah, I'm really excited to see the impact on our whole collective concept of reality. It like upsets the whole apple cart. I mean, it's more than just people getting better from 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 earth medicine trauma or whatever. That's all great. But that's all just our PTSD, all that stuff. But it's just like it upsets the whole apple cart of like people who were born in the generation of these things are the fucking devil to now they're only going to be, you know, 60, 70, mm -hmm. maybe at the most. And they're and, and they've turned into major treatments for, uh, you know, it just seems like one of those paradigm shifting things mm -hmm. that hopefully helps start waking people up. I hope so. So there were a couple reality mind blowing things in your story as well. The synchronistically, um, I I think it's worth telling because we talk about synchros all the time here. Darren actually rates them, rates oh them sometimes, but uh, <laughs> he's pretty hard. Um, oh no! Oh. I'm harsh but fair. He's harsh yeah, but fair, okay, but okay. I won't rate uh, extremely personal ones. Yeah. So, okay. but I, I mean, very, very often I, I have the option. Or you'll do it under the table, like you'll give some finger ratings <laughs> no, so that I, I can't see it, but he can see it. No, I just get to, <laughs> no, because I don't want to rate it at all. I don't go near it. So if it's like, okay. if it's too personal and I don't have to defend it, but I just, I always have the right to just, uh, what's it called when you don't vote? I abstain. abstain. I abstain from. Oh, you're abstaining. Yeah, yeah. But it hit okay. me pretty hard. I was reading. But it's book usually and... it's a super spiritual one where it's like it's not my place to rate someone's like, you know, super spiritual after experience death. or after, after death. death or it's like, yeah, yeah. It's like a enough. dream yeah. communication. It's like I'm not getting involved in that. If you think it's a fucking life changing thing because a song came on the radio while you were thinking it, and then your buddy texts you the same thing, I'll rate that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll rate that all day. You'll rate that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So, so go for it. It's that, you know, the one, the heavy the one. one, the I, one I, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of the one, uh, in the wall, the one where, in the yeah, wall. the wall. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I had said, um, before, before we went down the mushroom hole, I had said, uh, <laughs> something about forgiveness and, uh, you'd asked me a question about that. And, so it was 10 years after my mother was murdered that I finally figured out how to address all the energy I had in relation to her perpetrator, right? I had never gotten angry. I had, um, I didn't see the point in anger. I didn't want to be a victim. I felt pissed off that, that somehow I was a victim because of what happened. And so I went through this really lengthy intentional ceremony. No plant medicine was used in it. <laughs> Where for about once a week over the course of nine months, I created a ceremony and I invited him in so that I could have a conversation. And I had no idea if a spirit would come in when you called. I 
you know, I hadn't gone through this. He was dead. This was the only way I knew to get angry or to, to go into the victim self. And so when each ceremony showed up organically, I would get um, angry. I would play my drum. I would scream and shout. My, I had a one and a half year old or, or a nine month old actually who would be napping and my twins were in kindergarten. So I had like an hour and a half <laughs> and I made use of that little time slot. And what would happen organically through that process is I had lots of different shamanic journeys that came on my own. And in one of those, I was led to this vision. And in this vision, I put my arm around, I saw a woman sitting on a wall and I know there's, this is going to relate to the other wall synchronicity. And so there's a woman sitting on a wall and she has her arm around this little boy. And she's pulling this little boy to her, and he's about 10 years old. And before them is a small pyramid. And I, I know that this boy is upset about something that he's done, and he has to go and make amends in this pyramid. So I'm kind of coaching him and encouraging him that he could do this. Then my conscious self kicks in, and I realize that in this vision, this little boy is Peter Bright Eyes, my mother's murderer. And that I am the woman as his mother in this vision. And I pulled myself out of it with, you know, a holy fuck, what was that? How could I have this experience of compassion and love for this, this horrible, heinous human being that, you know, up until that moment, I hadn't even thought of was deserving of love. And that experience led me on a really profound journey of contemplating who he was as a human being. And so as I slowly learned to hold and express this compassion that I had alongside of the anger that I had, and that took some time, they slowly started to weave themselves together that I, in such a way that I started to contemplate forgiveness. Like I hadn't contemplated forgiveness until that moment. You know, it, it, well, forgiveness wasn't even on the table. And so in the fall of uh, um, sometime, in the fall, once upon a time, I don't know, when I was six or something, uh, I was at this shamanic training workshop. And one of the exercises that we were doing in the workshop was to make mandalas out of things in nature that represented our teachers. And I did this process very intuitively where I would just, you know, say a prayer, connect with my own felt sense, go out on the land, gather, make offerings and gather what felt appropriate. And then as I was making the mandala, I would ask spirit what each thing represented. And as I picked up what each thing represented, I would blow my breath into it, calling forth what it was and place it in the mandala. You know, and I had the normal ones like mother, father, teacher from a time in my youth, mentor here, friend here. And as I got to this last remaining object, I saw that the it represented Peter Bright Eyes. And I had this deep awareness that he was one of the greatest teachers in my life. And that, that actually totally disarmed me. I wasn't expecting that. And, but I knew it was true that I would not have been able to go through the experience of compassion had I not gone through the loss of my mother. I wasn't in any way um, uh, grateful for having lost my mother like that. However, I could see 
that that had led to me having this experience of compassion and I needed to be thankful for that. So in that moment of gratitude, I saw that I forgave him. And that sent me on this uh, path of like feeling such deep liberation. Like I had the keys to the universe (laughs) at that moment of like, wow, this is amazing if we go into our deepest fears. And so being a verbal processor, I wrote about it. And I used to write in, uh, um, well, this is the first article I ever had in Mosaic magazine, which was the body, mind and spirit magazine in Alberta for many years. And I wrote about having created this ceremony with her perpetrator about seeing his humanity and then coming to this experience of forgiveness and liberation. So when it was in print, I was back from my very first trip to Peru and I went to go and pick up the magazines and it just happened to be about 10 blocks from the parkade where she was murdered. So as soon as I picked up the magazines, I just knew I had to go to the parkade. So I drove over to the parkade, holding the magazine, I'm talking to my mom, I'm talking to spirit. I'm like, okay, now what? And I hear this voice to tear out the article, to roll it up like a scroll, tie it with some hair from my head, put a rock in it, and stick it in the wall. Now, the parkade was made of cinder blocks. uh, The wall of the parkade on the main level was made of cinder blocks. And, of course, initially, I'm like, really? Tie it with hair from my head? That's kind (laughs) of creepy. Like, you know? And yet, the voice was very clear. Yes, absolutely. Tie it with hair from your head. And so I did. And so I said my own prayers and I just connected with her and gave thanks and placed it in the wall just as my own giveaway. Then about nine months later, something like that, I get this email. If you would believe it from a woman who found the article in the wall and she introduces herself as Amber and shares a story of how she came across this scroll, as she called it how she hesitated about opening it because of the hair. (laughs) And if you would believe she had lost her mother to homicide. And she came across the words that I wrote and she couldn't believe that here she was finding a story of somebody who had also lost their mother to homicide talking about a forgiveness experience with the perpetrator. And she was led led there. That is my synchronicity for you to rate. I'll add to it because she was led there by thinking there was something on the ground that was actually like a biker hat, which she was, which she was, she was kind of scared or, or maybe not scared, but worried about that being like, fearing that there was bikers that had done this to her mom, I think. And that led her to the, to the thing on the wall. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Was it bikers? Uh, I don't know if it was bikers. <laughs> See, these are the silly questions he asks. All right. <laughs> well, hey. Was, was there, was bi- were bikers involved in her mom's death? Do you know? Uh, no. Oh. No. At the time, she thought that they were. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. Well, I have to be sure. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. This isn't willy-nilly. All right? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. I'm going to give that a 8.7. Wow, that's pretty high. That's pretty high. That's one of the highest. I mean, I wish I, I need to. I should have like a 
Like, I feel like I should have some bells to yeah. go. Yeah, do, 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 do. I Usually have, I have my... Oh, nice, I need nice. to get one of those. He does have a jingle. We do have a we do have a jingle, a synchronicity jingle. I don't oh. have the jingle board. Usually, I only have it for intros because I tend to accidentally hit buttons sometimes. Oh, you got to put that on your wish list. I well, yeah, I have a big. Long you need wish list. a you need like a bell upgrade, like ding. one of those things that hangs down even, and you can just. That would actually be a huge downgrade from all the things we tried, but it would probably always work. <laughs> Where can our listeners get the book? Where can they track you down on social media, anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to either sarahsalterkelly.com is my website and trauma as medicine is my Facebook page. I have an Instagram trauma as medicine, as well as Sarah Salter Kelly. And they can buy the book on my website. Awesome. Yeah, this has been great. I mean, you answered my question with the synchronicity about how you ended up, you know, going through that forgiveness and all that. So, uh, yeah, it's been fantastic. No, I love the book awesome. a lot. It was great. And, uh, yeah, we really thank you for coming on and talking about it. Thank you, guys. And, thank oh, you yeah. So well, well you, will you, do, you also do, like, workshops and healings and stuff as well. Like, do you want to talk a little I bit do. about that? I do. I had, I had stopped everything before the pandemic because I was taking the year to write my book. Uh, and so I'm slowly putting up programs online that are corresponding with trauma as medicine. Okay. I do private sessions online right now. Okay. Uh, I, I, single sessions or soul retrieval, or I do a forgiveness process okay. that I used to teach in workshops. And then I also have, I'll have retreats next year and potentially trips to Peru the following year. Wow. Nice. Mm. That's great. Okay. Good. Peru, eh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Darren's already yeah. thinking about we've been doing trips like uh, we call them contact at the cabin but now it's like contact at the canyon and all these different uh, it got out of different workshops fast. so Darren, <laughs> I can see Darren Darren's already going contacted I, Peru or contact I know I know I'm uh, I'm almost a little nervous right we're now we're heading to Cairo already <laughs> yeah we're going to Egypt and a whole bunch of things but I mean the ayahuasca thing would be a good contact oh it's it bound to happen good. yeah yeah it's bound to happen <laughs> Dude, that might be when I finally uh, try something. I've got, uh, I'll, we'll talk about it off air. All right. I've got uh, some, some what I would call legitimate modern day shaman. Uh, a good friend of mine and his brother want to do a legit get down to business mushroom ceremony. He called wow. me the other day and I was just like, whoo. <laughs> yeah. I won't talk anymore about that right now. Okay. Thanks for joining us. I'll put links to all that in the Thanks. show notes, Sarah. And it was great. And if you're ever in Calgary, look us up and we'll, uh, we'll have you in studio. I'm looking you up. I'm going to come up with a synchronicity where I can up my 8.7. <laughs> all right. Good luck. Good luck. You have to support Thanks. the show first. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks right. a lot, Sarah. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks guys. Okay. See ya. And that was our chat with Sarah Salter Kelly. What'd you think, buddy? Oh, yeah, that was good. Yeah, I'm glad we got into the psychedelics and stuff. And you know what? We left some on the table, but it went on for a while. We might have to have her back on or something to talk about the residential schools. She gets into that uh, in her book, actually. There's a whole chapter on uh, 
the sort of uh, you know the the racism of the natives and uh, and what's been happening with colonialism and the residential oh, schools and but I mean now it's just a whole other shift gears. So, but uh, yeah, we got to get into that one of these days on the show. Like you know again. Yeah, we should do a few of those. You know that we should do a Rockfin series on it, but I don't know. It'd be hard to find enough people to talk about it. Yeah. Like oh. do six episodes on residential schools. Oh, and I shit see. Yeah, yeah. With like visual aids yeah. and yeah, that might be tough. Yeah, it'd be tough. We'd but have maybe to probably we'll do just, well, maybe, just maybe do a you can do it. Sure. This can be something you can yeah, whip you together go. with yeah. your uh, yeah. with your newfound free time. Yeah. Uh, of course, we couldn't do that newfound free time for Mister Dunlap if it wasn't for that's right lovely mother foes like you supporting the show. Grammarica.ca slash support. Uh, you have got Graham halfway out the door, three quarters, two thirds of the way, two thirds of the way, two three fifths, three fifths, yeah. three fifths of the way out the door. Let's get him that extra forty percent. America.ca slash support. If you're getting some value from the show, adding a little bit of value to your life, to your day, to your commute, to your workout, wherever you listen to the show, uh, head over to America.ca slash support today, and you decide that value value there. It'll be a buck a month, two bucks a month, five bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month. You decide. I mean, you got to cancel your cable anyway because <laughs> it's fucking ruining your life. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me on this. You won't really realize it till, till about year three. No. And by, no, a couple probably months. Year, three months. Three months. Yeah, but by like three, five years, you're just like, wow. Oh, you go back. <laughs> We got to do that where you come over and watch the news no, one night and we got to do that pre show. We have oh. to do it just for the experience of the show. We that have could be to. a Rockfin show. America watches the news. <laughs> we'll just have it playing in the corner. Commentate. Just commentating on it. Yeah. That's it. Uh, I think that's it. Anything else? Audiobooks. That's audiobooks. a good way to support the show. Adultbrain.ca. If you want to get those audiobook actions. And. Grimerica Outlawed. Did you mention it? We should really mention that. Yeah, that's just our other show as well. And honestly, like if you just sign up for the free version, get more people listening for free, that would be fantastic. Just Grimerica Outlawed. And spread that out. Like it's really, we don't have any marketing. It's not like we, we're not even really on social media that much anymore. And it, and, it, and that's not going to be a, a means of marketing. So it really is counting on just telling, telling your friends. You know, I was looking at the, I was at the Napoleon Hill foundation I website today i was there yesterday looking were you trying yeah what were you looking at i was trying to get see if we could get copyright on the on the uh the book i was trying the, to get uh, uh what's his name on outwitting the, the devil i was trying to trying to get did you see the course yeah that i i started going i was like oh boy they're not going to give us copyright when they got all these courses and people taking no, the courses and they're not going to just go oh yeah here are these two i'm two, tempted uh, to take the course oh yeah yeah, it's a bit. I got the sense it was a bit because uh, I went to the the Canadian website the as well. Napoleon Hill Leadership yeah. and something course. Yeah, but it's, it's it, it reminded me a little bit about those circuit courses in the eighties, like the Seven Habits of Successful People and the you know like the, the Carnegie the, stuff. The Carnegie the stuff. Carnegie yeah, stuff is some uh, of the most powerful stuff. I know, but dude, it just those feels things weird. still three know, grand apart. It feels weird going into those courses with a bunch of people. I think it's still online now. And, uh, yeah, maybe, but. Online. It seems a bit, it so, feels yeah. a bit pyramidy to me. So I would want to look into it. What do you mean pyramidy? Pyramid scheming. I'm not going to sell anything after. I just want the training. They'll, you'll, no, they'll be, they'll be selling you to sell the training and you'll be starting your own I'll business out of it. You'll be coaching. You'll be <laughs> <laughs>
All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. I'm walking gingerly through the rat race. Take a look at the big old smile on my face. Kicking around down by the pool of narcissists. The people are many, they preen themselves. Oh, how they navel gaze. Somewhere over that hill, the gloomy skies cease to exist. I'm climbing that hill, I pass by and pity the poor Sisyphus. I go into hyperdrive, turn into a beam of light. I'm strolling down a static electric avenue. The people are predictable, they say, good morning, how do you do? When out of nowhere, a randomly pure angel in the crosswalk bumps into me. And in doing so, knocks all the evil and all the wind out of me. And it's black as tar, ugly as ever, and of no apology. This angelic mama sings heavenly of the truest theology. Together we're a seraphim dream, forever young with no chronology. A thousand years from now, we'll be written into ancient mythology. We go into hyperdrive, turn into a beam of light. Can you tell me about the view up there? It's sparkling remarkably, the air is crystal clear. Well, please won't you tell me what it takes to transcend this place? A little bit of heart and a whole lot of soul Take a look at the big old smile on my face As my angel says dance with me and your life will never ever ever be told I go into hyperdrive, turn into a beam of light 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 Turn into a beam